passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. That leads me to my next because for those out there listening, uh, Mike Sweet, one of the most underrated hitters of my time. I mean, it, maybe it had something to do with Kansas City, but some years you had for, you know, 99 to 05. I mean, I remember watching you and thinking, this guy can flat out hit. You had to move, and, and fans hear about it a lot, but I want to hear it from a guy that had to make that move, a great teammate of mine. Uh, really good friend is Edgar Martinez. He had to make the move from third base to DH. We've had Paul Molitor, uh, Jason Giambi, uh, Jim Tomey. I've had them all on the podcast, all DHs. I don't know if I could have done it, Swain. I mean, as as a second baseman, I had, and, I, and I'd say this all the time, but hitting is so hard, especially at that level. It was a. It was almost like a, an escape for me because I knew I was even on my best years. I was going to have times where I just wasn't hitting. If I wasn't hitting, I knew my glove was sitting at the end of the dugout, and I could go take a hit away from somebody else. And I had that in my brain, and it kept me sane because you have those times where you're where you're zero for four and three punch outs, and and if you can turn a big double play, maybe you help win the game that day. It gave me a little bit of peace of mind when I wasn't hitting. I don't know if I could have been a DH. I talked to Edgar, you know, when I was playing with Edgar, one of the greatest DHs of our, of our generation. And I just, I used to ask him, I said, how do you do it? 
And he said, you know, at the beginning it was hard and, and I just got into a ritual and, and I would see him in between at bats. He, he'd do one thing. First of all, he'd be in the video room, then he'd be on the bike and then keeping himself occupied and into the game. What, what was the toughest transition for you? Uh, was it easy or was it, was it tough? Well, going back to my transition from catcher to non-catcher, I thought my career was over, Booney. I thought, man, this is my bread and butter. I wanted, I wanted to wear number eight. I wanted to be like Bob Boone. And when they told me in Kansas City, you're never going to catch again, it, it crushed me. I thought, man, I'm going to have to head back to Southern California and start sacking groceries because if I can't catch, I can't play. And ironically, about this time of the year in 1999, Booney, uh, you, you played against uh, Jeff King, right? Yes. Uh, first baseman. Pittsburgh Pirates. Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah. On the anniversary of his 10th year in the major leagues of service time, we're teammates in Kansas City. It's the end of April. I'm the third catcher on the team, DH in a little bit, pinch hitting here and there. And I was hitting about 350. And Jeff King comes in and says, you know what? I'm done. I got a, I got a ranch that I bought from Hank Williams Jr. in Montana. My wife and I have seven kids. And uh, you know what? I'm done. I'm done playing ball. And uh, you talked about Jason Giambi, his little brother, Jeremy, and I were teammates. Right. And uh, God rest his soul. But uh, the, the man that preceded your father um, in, in managing the Kansas City Royals, Tony Muser, came up and said, hey, Sweens, look, um, you don't have a first baseman anymore. And I was wondering, we're thinking about platooning you and Jeremy Giambi at first base. And I was wondering if you can play some first base. Have you played much first base? I said, yeah, Skip, I played a ton of first base. You know, I'm good over there. I can handle myself. He said, all right, we'll be out there tomorrow at 1 o'clock. You, you, and, you and Giambi are going to be working with Richie Dower and working on some, some stuff at first base. So I'm like, all right, man, I can get off the bench. I can, get, I can quit being the 25th player on the team. Um, and as Jeff King was rolling out of the Royals locker room with his duffel bag, I said, hey, Kinger, are you really going to retire? Are you really going back to Hank William Jr.'s ranch in Montana? <laughs> and he said, yeah, why? I said, well, if you're going to retire, you probably don't need that first baseman's glove, right? And he goes, no, I'm, I hate baseball. I'm never going to play again. I said, do you mind if I use your glove? Because they want me to play first base tomorrow. And I haven't played it since I was 13 years old in Pony League. So uh, so I got to come up the next day. I'm, I'm literally using Kinger's glove the next day. And I got to transition into playing some first base and DHing. But um, to get to your point and your question, it was a transition. But the, the thing that I went back to, you, you mentioned it, Booney. The most important thing was winning a ball game. And if you're over four, okay, you, you know what? You were going to steal some hits and you stole a ton at second base. But for me, whether I was playing first base or DH, and I knew that my bat in that lineup was going to help us win games. And if it, if it wasn't my bat, it was my leadership. And I could kind of propel my teammates to believe in themselves and help them play beyond their ceiling. So, yeah, uh, it, it definitely was a, an adjustment going from a catcher who was, you know, in the middle of the action all the time and trying to guide a pitching staff and throw a runner out and block a ball and massage the pitcher into thinking that he's good enough to get through an inning um, to now all I can do is play first base once in a while and DH, but my bat was the thing that carried me. And it really did. Um, the hitting side of it, I mean, I, I look at here in 99, he hit 322. 2000 he hit 333 he hit 304 the following year he hit 340 in 02 you're a five you're a five-time all-star and like i said i used to watch you hit and 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 i don't say this lightly i mean i i looked at you like i looked at manny ramirez 
And mm. I said, this guy hits like him. He really does. And I think that the average right there, it shows up that, that I wasn't far off. And I'm going, he really is just a, an astute hitter. He studies the – I, I want to talk to you about hitting in your philosophy. Did you take it from a catching standpoint, what you were thinking as a catcher, what you're going to throw? Because mm. later in my career when I when I had all, most of my offensive success, I really had a plan when I went to the plate. I completely changed. And as a young player, I was a uh, house on fire, and it was just hit, 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 swing hard. And and as I got a little bit older, I still swung hard. But I really had an approach when I left that on-deck circle, and, and I stuck yep. with my approach because I was told if you stick with that approach and you don't waver over 162 games, you're going to have the best outcome as, as you could. Sometimes we've got to fight fight ourselves because we do have a plan going into each and every at-bat. Uh, but yep. that discipline to stay with the plan really helped me uh, the second half of my career from the offensive side of the game. I mean, I'd go up there, and, and it would depend for me, Swain, who was catching. And I want to see how, how much you hit like I did. It depended yep. who was catching. But I'd take everything into consideration. What have I done this series? What is that bull? Who who might be coming into the game? What's the what's the situation of the game? Who's on deck? Is there a base open? Is there not a base open? What did I do last time against this hitter? The, all these things go into a formula of how I'm going to approach this particular at bat, and what I think you as the catcher are going to put down with those five fingers. Which finger are you going to put down? Am I right? Yeah. Am I wrong? That's a chess match that the player has with the pitcher and the catcher, the hitter is what I'm trying to say. Uh, yep. That's how I approach it. I want to talk about you and and how you approach hitting and all the success you had as a hitter. Well, great, great, Booney. Well, the main thing for me was when I stepped into that box, um, I wanted to try to turn off my mind and turn on my eyes uh, as much as I could. So if you ask any good hitter, Booney, I, I, I would ask you, when you were in the zone, when you're hitting balls 18 rows up to right center field and it was time after time after time again, um, what were you thinking? Uh, nothing. When I was locked in the zone, the ball was coming in like a beach ball. It was slow motion. But what were you, were you thinking of the box? On a scale of 1 to 10, how much were you thinking? Probably a 0 or 1? Okay, how, much, how, about, how well were you seeing the ball? Exceptionally well. So one thing that Dr. Bill Harrison up in Laguna Beach taught me is you can't be cerebral and you can't be visual at the same time. So one thing I tried to do is when I got in the box, all I wanted to do, my MO, was see the ball, slow it down, and either knock the, try to split the seams on the ball, make the ball explode, or take the ball properly. But before I stepped in that box, Boney, you, you had your litany of list of, of the things that factored into your algorithm before you jumped in the box. And I was the same way. You know, goes goes back to the scouting report. What's this guy do against power hitting right-handed hitters? Uh, what's his breakdown on fastball, slider, changeup? Does he like to pitch inside or is he a guy that throws the ball away? And I would take that scouting report and it became a chess match. So that at times I felt that I was playing chess and the pitcher was playing checkers. Like I knew that he was going to, what he was going to throw before he threw it. I would study video relentlessly, get to the field at noon and see, you know, there were many guys, Booney, you, I remember talking to you, um, you could read a pitcher's hand and know by the angle of his glove or the, the width of his glove, how he opened it, or maybe it was the, his tongue, on what pitch he was throwing. Sometimes the catcher would uh, sh show it. I remember playing against A-Rod, and when he was at shortstop, he'd, he'd look in at the sign from the catcher, and if it was an off-speed pitch, as the pitcher was coming set, 
A-Rod would take two steps to his right. So I'm like, perfect, off-speed pitch. Um, if it was a fastball, he would stay still. So there are little intricacies that you take into your algorithm uh, of, of how you prepare to, to battle that pitcher, how he pitched you last at bat, how he faced you last game, success that you've had against him. So, yeah, but the one thing that I took on was I'm not going to help my team if I strike out. I think the most strikeouts I had in a year was 65, and that was in over 700 plate appearances. So my approach was, man, from the first pitch on, I wanted to barrel something up and hammer it hard. And like you, Booney, my approach was prepare to hit the fastball, be on time to hit the fastball, to center field, the right center field gap, every single pitch, and then adjust. So I, I, was, I would like to ask you before you get to your next question, Booney, I know I'm your guest here. Yes, you are, Swain. How the heck did you hit the ball so far to the opposite field? I mean, you were hitting the ball to right center like a left-handed pole hitter. Well, I, I, I always admired that approach on you. I used to laugh at, uh, you know, you mentioned Alex. Um, Alex, I mean, he would get to second base, and he'd ask me just that question. Now, we all know Alex Rodriguez. I mean, he almost has 700 homers. He could hit yeah. balls where I was hitting him to right center out <laughs> on his front foot. But he would ask me that question, Booty, how, how do you do it? I was like, shut up, Alex. You can do it. You know how I do it. Um, you know, for me, Mike, I, especially later in my career, obviously I wasn't the tallest guy out there. So I had to find a way to create leverage. And, and I stood as straight up and down as I could. A lot of guys have the the luxury of spreading out. I wish I could spread out because I felt like I had more control of my body from a spread out stance, but I'm going to give up a lot of power that way. I just had to catch the ball far back in, in the zone as far back as I could. And uh, I, I just started with a philosophy of, I eliminated the inside part of the plate because I thought there's not enough pitchers out there that can pitch inside effectively. They, they might yep. throw a strike. They might hit the inside corner. That's not where we do our damage anyway. You know, on the outside yep. corner, the inside corner, where we do our damage usually is we're looking one place and then pitcher makes a mistake out over the plate. Am I right? I mean, most, yeah, home runs, right. most home runs aren't great pitcher's pitches. Yes, once in a while you hit a pitcher's pitch out. But yep. statistically, you're going to hit the mistakes. I just thought middle of the field and I'm going to hit a ball. I, I always pictured there was a mountain in center field, center, right center field. And I'm going to hit this ball, not over the mountain, but through that mountain. And yep. it just seemed that the, the, the farther back I let that ball get, I had to be on time at my height, five ten on a good day. I had to do everything <laughs> perfect. I couldn't go get that pitch. That's going to be a lazy yep. fly ball to right field. I've got to hit it in the back, back, back of my stand. That's the only way I was going to able to have that power the other way. So that's what I used to think. I went in doubt for me. That's it was great. pretty simple. I want to pitch middle away, even if I was facing an Al Lighter. Remember Al yep. Lighter with that Cutter, cutter. Cutters in, gonna, cutter in. It, It's almost like he could step off the mound, say, hey, Booney, I'm throwing you a cutter <laughs> inside every pitch. Well, I did that as a young player, and I was going to show him. You know, my ego took over, and I'm thinking, yep. I'm going to get that cutter. Now I'd rip one foul off the turf. Off the yep. off the the tarp down the left field line. Tarp down way the left to, field line. Right, way way to go! You really hit that one hard. You showed him. <laughs> Later in my career, I, I really started getting away from that, saying I am completely eliminating the inside. I don't want that pitch. If he can paint me with three fastballs in the inside corner, 
I'll tip my hat and I'll, I'll, I'll walk away. I don't want it. I refuse to look at it, look for it. No matter how much damage I've done on the outside of the plate, I will not look in. If he's going to pitch me in, I'm going to take it in off the plate for a ball or wait for him to try to come in and leave it out over the plate. So that was kind of my my philosophy later in my career. And and I like I said, I formulated a plan and I stuck with it. But but just letting that ball get deep. And I know mm-hmm. we hear it in the hitting hitting worlds all the time. Let the ball travel. No, no, it wasn't that. It was as simple as in a flip drill before before uh, before a game. I never would hit a ball to the pull side ever because I want to let that ball no matter where I I got to the point. And I don't know if uh, this is this is interesting to me. I when asked when you're in the zone, what you could do. And this is what I could do when I was at my best. I could take a 95 mile an hour fastball on the black inside and I could barrel it and hit a double down the right field line. And I knew I knew if I could Mm -hmm. do that, my swing was perfect. And there was no way to get me out. Now that didn't happen all the time. You know, I was vulnerable more <laughs> than I wasn't. But but that that was my thought. I can take any pitch on the plate, hit it through the middle of the field, barrel it up. Because because what do what do average hitters do? They take the fastball inside. What do they do? They roll over it and they hit a ground ball yep. shortstop. If I could yep. take that pitch and keep it through the middle of the field, I knew my bat was on the right plane. But I knew in order to do that, to get the barrel to it, I needed to let that ball get deep in the hitting zone. I uh, that's, love it. It's kind of a long winded answer, but there it is. No, it's perfect. There we go. Two strike approach. You talked about you didn't punch out much. I think you punched out. Uh, 613 times in your entire career and you walked 522 times. There's not too many people. Well, I'd say nowadays there's nobody that has a ratio even close to that. If you ever, you know, Tony Gwynn probably had more, more walks than punch outs, but that's, that's Tony Gwynn. That's one in a million, especially in today's, today's generation. What did you do with two strikes? I think I saw a YouTube video and you talking about two strike approach. I had a two strike approach. And it was a little bit goofy. I'd changed my stance for that, but I was giving up and I was battling. I was not going to let that umpire call strike three on me. I want to hear about Mike Sweeney's two-strike approach. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so Boney, when I was a kid, I don't know if you ever hit at the Home Run Park down on Beach Boulevard and and right by Knott's Berry Farm, but my godfather owned this little batting cage, and um, I used to go there as a kid. My my dad used to give hitting lessons there, and and I used to work on hitting, hitting, hitting. And once in a while, my dad would say, as a young boy, "Hey, Mike, let's go to the ninety mile an hour machine, and let's." I'm I'm ten years old, and he said, "Let's let's practice getting the bat on the ball." And he said, put your bat on your shoulder, spread your feet out a little bit, and just work on a little load with your hands and just explode to the ball. And uh, I remember at 10 years old hitting the 90-mile-an-hour machine with my pops. And then that kind of evolved into, hey, when you get two strikes, go to that approach where it doesn't matter if the guy's throwing 100. I know I could go from A to B on you know, 100. My last at-bat in the big leagues was against the Rollis Chapman throwing 103 miles an hour. And I hit a line drive base hit into left field at, at 37 years old. So – it was years and years of practice in that boonie. 
And um, I'll tell you, I had a traditional upright stance like you. Uh, my first four or five years in the big leagues. And then with two strikes, though, I would spread out and I'd bring my bat, you know, in a, in a load position, just kind of more spread out. I'd pick up my front heel as my load. And I was just thinking, just load early and just drop barrel, drop barrel and ball. And uh, I remember in 1999, I had a hitting coach named Lamar Johnson. Lamar Johnson came up to me, Boney. It's the middle of May, so we're about six weeks into the season. And Lamar says, hey, Sweens, look at, I looked up at the scoreboard, and you're hitting 365. And I go, wow. He says, what do you think you're hitting with less than two strikes? What's your batting average with no strikes or one strike? And I said, well, shoot, probably 400. He says, no, you're hitting 214. He said, what do you think you're hitting with two strikes? I said, I don't know. He said, you're hitting 465 with two strikes. And he said, what I'd like to see you do is you eliminate all the movement that you have. You have an upright stance. I had longer levers than you. I have um, really, really long arms. And when I was upright, it, it caused me to drift a little bit into the, into the ball and towards the pitcher, and I'd tie myself up. But with two strikes, I would use my legs as a way to stop me, and I would let my barrel work for me. So he says, Sweens, what I'd like to propose is that with, when you step in the box, go to your two-strike approach from pitch one. And I said, Booney, Lamar, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up all my power. He says, you ain't going to give up your power. Trust me. So I'll never forget. I come up. It's bases loaded. It's the um, first inning. We're in Jacobs Field. I think they've changed the name now. We're playing against the Indians. Yeah, they changed that name too. And, uh, and I'm coming up. It's bases loaded. I'm hitting cleanup. And the pitcher, I think it was, it may have been Bartolo Colon, threw me a nasty 2-1 slider on the black. And if I'm standing upright, there's no doubt in my mind, I roll over that, hit a weak ground ball to shortstop, and it's a double play. But instead, I stayed behind the ball, and I hit a three-run double off the top of the fence. And I'll never forget it, Booney. I look in the dugout, and I see Lamar Johnson like this. And I said, all right, man, I trust you. I'm going to go with this. So from that day forward, the next – 11, 12 years of my career, I would just kind of have a wider approach. I'd pick up my heel as a load, and I would just drop head on the ball. And, with, and that, my two-strike approach became my all-the-time approach. But with two strikes especially, even with that modified wide approach, I would shrink the field. So my pull ball was going to be from the shortstop over um, to the right field line. So I would sacrifice a little bit. But so many times, Booney, you said it earlier, when you're going good, sometimes I'd hit a home run on a ball to right center field with two strikes. And I go, man, that ball must have been, he must have left it right down the middle. And I go back and watch the video and it was a fastball in on the black. But I eliminated the movement and I just simply got barrel on ball and I put myself in a strong position by letting the ball travel. But I, I always went back to the philosophy, I'm not going to help my teammates win and help the team if I strike out. So with two strikes, I kind of shortened up and said, hey, I'm going to get barrel on ball. And thankfully, Booney, you and I were strong enough, even with that two-strike approach, you barrel something up, it could still leave the ballpark. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about just just picking your picking your heel up and setting it down. There's so many, especially today's game, there's so many, uh, you know, the leg kicks. And, and people actually, in, in our time, leg kicks were kind of how you hit. You know, I, I had a, a decent-sized leg kick. Some, I didn't like it because it would screw up my timing. That's just yeah. naturally how my body acted. And I'd always want to, with two strikes, I would tame that down. And and now I, you know, I felt like I, my foot never left the ground, but I'd look at the replay and that was just, yeah. 
it was a smaller leg kick that I normally have. Leg kicks are yeah. great, and when they're on time, they are powerful. That's uh, right. But I, re- I remember talking to Josh Donaldson a few years back, and he was asking me about it. I said, Josh, that leg kick gives you a lot of power, but it's a timing problem. And at the big league level, you're not going to be able to keep that on a daily. But if you're going to have the leg kick, you need to be able to recognize that the timing's not there and not go 0 for 20. You need to recognize it when you're 0 for 6. Now we go to the simulator leg kick when we get our timing back. Now go to that leg kick again. Uh, We had great conversations about that. Keep it as simple as possible. I think if I were able to do what you did and just lift my heel up and set it down, I, I, I used to sit there and I, I'd watch other hitters. And I go, wish I could do that. You know, Edgar, <laughs> Edgar's, Edgar's hands, he, he would load, but his hands didn't have a ton of, they didn't drop. Mine dropped. And I was like, man, I, I wish I could do that. And I wish I could do this. We're all so different. But, you know, if we could pick and choose each quality from hit, our favorite hitters, <laughs> man, what, what, what a hitter we'd all be, be good. And how easy the game would be. <laughs> yeah. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. 